Welcome back to the Talking Points Summer Season Special. Welcome back to Season 2 of Talking Points. This season, we're back with another 10 beautiful conversations with some of the world's most extraordinary dancers, choreographers and artistic directors. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. So this season, we've got a bonus episode. Today, we've got a quick catch-up with the Australian Ballet's artistic director, David Hallberg. Last season, David and I spoke about his incredible life, about growing up in South Dakota, about being bullied, before becoming principal at the American Ballet Theatre and going on to become the first American to be invited to dance with the Bolshoi Ballet in Russia. We talked about climbing back from his epic injury and his headspace during that time before taking over as the artistic director of the Australian Ballet right in the middle of COVID. To hear that conversation, scroll back to episode 10 of season one and we'll put the link in the show notes. And so, a year on from our last conversation, we talk about what it's like to be artistic director now that theatres are open and audiences are back. We talk about how David selects dancers, how he decides who's promoted, and how life in Australia is treating him in the Australian Ballet's 60th year. We're just quickly interrupting this episode to let you know that we're delighted that David Holberg's bonus episode of Talking Points is sponsored by Energetics. Energetics are a sustainable Australian-made brand that specialise in creating world-class dancewear for the stars of tomorrow. Perform and feel your best at every stage of your dance journey in Energetics premium high-performance fabrics. You can see their entire range online at energetics.com.au And for all Talking Points listeners, there's a 20% discount on all Energetics products using the code DAVID20 at the checkout. And the offer is available until the end of March 2023. Hello, David Holberg. How are you? I'm good. Good. How are you? (laughs) I'm really well. I think the last time we spoke, you had been artistic director for, I think, only a mere six months. Um... But it was a tricky six months because COVID had really restricted performances, audience numbers were, you know, I don't think theatres could be at capacity. And I just wanted to ask, you know, we're we're 12, nearly 18 months down the track now. Does it feel like the shackles are off? Uh, It feels like I've been an artistic director for only 2022, when in fact I started in 2021. I, you know, spent the entire first year being a motivational coach (laughs) (laughs) and telling the dancers, you know, hey, listen, this is canceled, that's canceled, but we're going to get through this, you know, let's persevere, let's charge forward. And so then this year actually I feel like I now know what it feels like to be the director of the Australian ballet, which is amazing. I mean, it's, you know, it's, there's a refreshed energy um, within the company, within the dancers. uh, And, you know, although audiences are a bit slow to come back, Mm -hmm. I feel like that people that are coming back are realizing this sort of fresh vibe of the company. I know last year we spoke about the huge transition that you, you know, I suppose that you were still going through from dancer to artistic director. What have you found to be the most maybe unexpected bits or the most challenging bits? Um, You know, I have to say I'm not missing dancing. 
I think, you know, some dancers really go through this identity crisis in that they're not on stage. They're not feeling that adrenaline anymore. And I feel such a different sense of adrenaline now. Mm-hmm. It's the adrenaline of putting on a performance, rehearsing these dancers, guiding these dancers, choosing the repertoire, all of that. But I think for me, the most abrupt change was, to be honest, the rapport within the dancers. Okay. I was, you know, I was their colleague in a way. I was their um, fellow performer. I went out to the pub. I see, like, so more of an equal. Yeah, I was more of an equal. I went to the pub and had beers with them, and now I'm their director. And so that's changed the dynamic, but not as a negative. It's a role that I'm in that I'm assuming, and I, I take very seriously. And so I'm now, like, mentor and guider I help them navigate their careers and their performances. I feel very sort of um, content with where I'm at, but it definitely was a change. Yeah. Is it so nice to be able to pick your own dances and mould your own company? You know, it's funny. I was watching the show last night and I was sitting in what we call the lighting booth, which is in the, the very back of the stalls and no one can hear us. It's soundproof and you can see the performance, but you're not sitting in the audience. And we, I was having a chat with the assistant director, Fiona Tonkin. I told her, you know, I was looking at the cast on stage and I thought, you know, these are a group of dancers. I'm so emotionally attached to because I feel like we're all on board for the same roller coaster ride. And it's such a beautiful thing to look at the dancers on the stage and think each individual dancer on stage, I believe so deeply in and in their potential and their trajectory and their contribution to the company. That's incredible. So do you think that the year of COVID where you sort of unexpectedly became this sort of emotional support, even though you had never yourself been through something like that, helped with that? Yeah, I think it helped with, I mean, listen, silver linings, Mm. you know, I mean, what we were going through was this extreme kind of chaos and hardship and lockdown and all all that Mm. stuff, but we were doing it together. And we just kind of banded as a company and got each other through like these really confusing times. So then when we came out the other end now, I feel like I can honestly say, I feel like they trust me. Mm. I can, I feel like they can trust kind of the repertoire that I'm commissioning, where I'm bringing them, how I'm pushing them. You know, it's not all like great job, great performance. I mean, I, I, I want them to do, to be their best. So I'm, Sometimes I have to push them beyond limits that they set themselves, which aren't always comfortable. So, yeah. So those tricky conversations that you, you know, as a fellow dancer, you would never have had to have. And now that change into molding someone and like bringing the best out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you see the results on stage and you see them realizing this potential that they have in in them as artists, I mean, it's so rewarding. You've brought in some superstar overseas recruits. I guess I wanted to ask, is that something you're hoping to do more of? Because, you know, I think in this country, traditionally, so many of the trainees came through the Australian Ballet School, but are you looking to bring more diversity, different styles of training to the company? You know, yes and no. I mean, for the majority, I'm committed to the way that the Australian Ballet trains Australian dancers 
And I am more conscious than I think an Australian running this company is of the identity of this company. Mm. Uh, I don't want the Australian ballet to lose their Australian identity. And I think that has to do with Australian dancers and Australian choreography and choreographers. On the other hand, I think we're living in an age where we can't close our borders to mm. the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, we can't just look around in any country and think that this place only gives opportunity to Australians or if it's, if it's an American company, Americans, we're not living in that era anymore. And for instance, I've, I've brought on two Russians to the company because mm -hmm. they fled the country because of the Ukrainian conflict and were homeless. And it was our humanitarian responsibility yeah. to say we are afforded great opportunity here in this company and we have to open our doors um, to great talent. On the other hand, I'm committed absolutely to the the school, to Australian dancers, to the opportunity that this company affords for Australian dancers, because that's the DNA, that's the heritage, that's the, you know, the mark that we're making in the dance world is, you know, what is the Australian in Australian ballet? I wanted to ask you about promotions. Yeah. So I think I'm right in saying, and, and totally correct me if I'm wrong, but in the States, and I know also in um, the UK, promotions are usually announced in like back offices with no one around to hear the news. And then the dancer sort of has to keep the secret. I was talking to um, Stephen McRae recently and he, when he became principal with the Royal Ballet, you know, he was told in an office and then he had to keep, you know, a poker face for weeks and weeks. I wanted to ask about what it's like to be part of, I guess, the more Australian tradition of where pr promotions, at least of principal artists, are announced on stage and for others in front of their peers in the studio. What's that been like for you? Is it something, um, yeah, the difference in that tradition? The best part of the job. Is it really? <laughs> <laughs> it, is the, it is the best part of the job. <laughs> when you are secretly planning a principal promotion for it to happen in front of thousands of people on stage and for you to secretly call the family and partners to say you should be in the performance this evening and you're cryptic even to them. <laughs> and then you go on stage with a microphone and the entire company knows exactly what's going to happen now that you have a microphone in your hand <laughs> and the audience erupts and the dancer starts crying. And you know, <laughs> it's like dreams, you know, with that promotion, you make, you make a dream come true. You absolutely do. Yeah. And on, on the other hand, you know, with the promotions that aren't a principle, what I've decided to do is just do them in front of everybody. Mm. You know, we get into a studio, the entire organization, and I say, this is the moment to congratulate hard work that pays off, but also a really great member of the culture of this company. And then I, I read off my list and sometimes the list is short, sometimes the list is long, but it just offers such a great morale boost to people that really deserve to be recognized for their hard work. Because, you know, this career is so meaningful to, to them. We don't choose to be dancers. We are chosen to be dancers. And it's really meaningful, you know, when you're recognized and when you're promoted. What sort of things do you consider before promoting a dancer? I consider 
you know, a number of things. I consider, I think, two main factors. One is uh, talent. One is, you know, the recognition of that talent and the development of that talent. But the other that is equally as important that I reiterate time and time again, you know, that I've done promotions is culture, is who you are in the culture of the company. And I really want to promote a positive kind of focused culture in the company. And so if you are, you know, this unbelievably talented artist, but you're kind of negative to the culture of the company, you're entitled, you're a diva, you don't put in the hard work, but your talent kind of sails you through. I just don't think that's a great equation for the culture of the Australian ballet, because whenever people come from overseas and they experience the Australian ballet, there's a reputation that the culture in this company is a gold standard. Mm. And it's something that I first experienced when I danced with the company in 2010 and I continue to experience and I have every intention to continue that kind of positive culture. It's, yeah, it's incredible to hear actually because that definitely resonates from the stage as a collective, yeah. that, that positive culture, that supportive culture. Are there any traditions from American ballet theatre or the Bolshoi that you'd like to bring to the Australian ballet? Uh, one of the traditions is actually the farewell. You know, there have been some dancers who have retired uh, principal dancers mainly that have retired from the stage here. Mm -hmm. And I feel that ABT does, you know, a, a, a farewell, a retirement really, really well. It's very celebratory. Mm -hmm. It's in front of the audience for the last performance. You know, a dancer's last performance is a really big deal. And I've tried to kind of nudge the principal artists of the company to take a really celebratory bow at the end of their mm. last performance. And I've done that. Ty King Wall, who was a principal artist with the company, mm -hmm. we did a really great send off for him. And I want to continue that because I think it's a really beautiful moment to celebrate um, a last performance of someone who's really devoted many years to the Australian ballet. You've invited the Tokyo Ballet to Melbourne for, I think it's the Giselle season next year. And I wanted to ask you to speak to that. Is that to bring exposure or for the company to work with different artists, different styles? Is it for inspiration? It's actually for cultural exchange. David McAllister actually started this. He started to invite, you know, companies down to Melbourne specifically to dance at state at state theater mm -hmm. under the umbrella of the Australian ballet. So he had Houston ballet, he had uh, Le Ballet de Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a beautiful thing to continue because first off, it gives an opportunity for Australian audiences to see a company that, you know, they probably wouldn't see. And as well for us, it gives us an opportunity to culturally exchange with a, a great company somewhere else around the world. So, so does the, the entire company come from Tokyo or just select artists? No, the entire company. It's it's the whole Tokyo Ballet. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's not really an exchange of like, you know, dancers dancing with to the Tokyo Ballet, mm -hmm. but it's a cultural exchange in a way that Tokyo Ballet is coming 
to Melbourne for the first time, and we will go back to Tokyo. Oh, I see. And then the Australian Ballet performs in Tokyo. Exactly. Okay. And so they host you. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's really important to continue a dialogue because, you know, we're so busy down mm. here. We're, we're doing 170 performances a year. We're, we're putting on, you know, five or six different programs. We're doing all of our community engagement, but it's, it's important to look up mm. from the desk at yeah. times and to realize who else is in the world, who else is making a major contribution to the dance world and to collaborate with them. Mm. Who else would you like to bring out? Oh, I mean, the list is long. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to bring out, you know, Royal Ballet. I'd love to bring out uh, Paris Opera, mm-hmm. some American companies, New York City Ballet. I mean, I can just, you know, we could finish the podcast with my list. <laughs> <laughs> and what about all of these heteronormative classics? How are we going to shake that up, David? Um, well. Big question. You... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. No, it didn't throw me off. <laughs> I just watch those princes and those princesses, and I often think, how are we going to move that forward? Into yeah, well, we, we are going to stay culturally relevant, and I think a classical art form has more work to do than a non-classical or traditional art form. Mm. I think in the commissioned repertoire, my plan is to continue to push stories and what relevant stories are being told today. So not so much the prince anymore, but um, I don't know, you know, gender diversity Mm. and diversity in general. Or like the humanitarian prince. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and First Nations stories. And, you know, that's happening in 2023 Mm. with our collaboration with Dan Riley and Australian dance theater. But then Speaking about Swan Lake and, you know, Don Q and all this stuff, I personally think the classics are exactly why they're called the classics. On the other hand, we have to stay in tune to why they're relevant. And I think that certain repertoire is becoming irrelevant because of its culturally insensitive material. Mm. And that goes to Le Bayadere, that goes to Le Corsair, you know, certain works that are just, I think in this day and age, they're becoming, they're, they're not going to stand the test of time. Mm. But I think this heteronormative, you know, storytelling, you know, heteronormative storytelling isn't a complete negative. It's just a different way of telling a story. You know, it's not, if it's not culturally insensitive, Mm. hetero stories are okay to tell, but so are homosexual stories. And so are gender fluid stories. Mm. And so the spectrum is, is broadening. And I think that's what's so exciting Mm. about dance and what's still so relevant about dance is that we can break down those assumed barriers of like, who is a man? Who is a woman? Mm. You know, who should they like? Who should they not like? And like, say that actually doesn't, we're allowed to tell those stories. We're allowed to, you know, tell the audience that this is actually what happens in everyday life. And I think that's so important, Mm. you know, instruments of dance, which is what we're performing right now has men, men in dresses. It has homoeroticism in the first work. Mm. I can tell the audience is, 
being pushed. And that's so important. And that's exactly that I feel so passionately that in order for the Australian ballet to stay relevant, yes, we tell hetero stories, but we also tell stories that are relevant to other people that people can connect with. Mm, and what a privileged position to be in. Yeah, I mean, and, and privilege, you know, privilege is is a really it's a it's a slippery word. And I think of it more as responsibility. Mm. You know, I have a huge responsibility as the leader of an organization, the artistic leader of an organization, and the organization has a huge responsibility to tell relevant stories and to open our doors to all kinds of people. Mm. We spoke last year about your assimilation into Australian life. What has changed in you over the last year or has there been something in you that has been an unexpected change from moving halfway across the world? Well, I ride a bike to work, which is amazing, (laughs) a push bike, and um, love coming from my neighborhood in Melbourne down to uh, to the studios. I never did that in my life. And I will admit, like, it's been a bigger move than I thought it was going to be. You know, there's been a really big adjustment culturally. Mm. And people would think, oh, yeah, but you moved to Russia at one stage in your life. Like, that must have been even more jarring. And yes, to a certain degree, because of the language and and the culturally, you know, the, the culture in Russia. But here, there's cultural subtleties that I am still adjusting to, but I really feel that this is my home. This is, and I've had those slips before where I'm like, you know, oh, I'm flying home or I'm, I'm headed home, you know, if I'm overseas or something. And I'll think like, oh my God, well, like Australia is home now. And it feels really good. Like it feels really, it's exactly where I should be. David Holberg, thank you so much. It's just been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thanks. Great chatting again. If you'd like to hear more about David's life, you'll find our full conversation in the show notes. Or you can read David's autobiography called A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back. For Australian ballet updates, you can find them on Instagram at ozballet. And to continue to follow all of David's adventures, you'll find him on Instagram at davidholbergofficial. David and I recorded remotely, with David dialing in from Melbourne on the land of the Kulin people, with recording and production on the land of the Awabakal and Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, to whom we pay our greatest respects. This is the final episode of Season 2 of Talking Points. We cannot thank our guests enough for sharing their stories, their lives and their vulnerabilities. To our sponsors, Block, Fjord Review Magazine and Energetics, thank you for all of your support. Their discount codes are still available in the episodes or see my Instagram for details. I'm at by Claudia Lawson. To our beautiful audience, thank you once again for your overwhelming response. Season three of Talking Points will be back next year. And in the meantime, please feel free to get in contact if you'd like to appear on the series or if you've got suggestions for guests. Talking Points is produced by Fjord Review. Remember to subscribe to get the episodes as soon as they're released. And if you like us, please leave a five-star review. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, with additional production by Penelope Ford and Clint Topic. Sound production and editing by Martin Peralta at Output Media. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.